the lesson of living your life deliberately, or the idea of living your life deliberately, and setting intention, and um, and living by that intention, I don't think requires anybody to make a bold decision. And but it does um, bring to that person a certain sense of power over their own lives. Um, that I think a lot of people relinquish way too easily. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we talk about quitting, quitting in order to really get started. So we go on a journey with a guy who did just that, Ben Fetter, climbed the corporate ladder to a big career, big income, and in many ways, just big success all over, but at a cost with his family, relationships, health, the stuff that we talk about, you know, conceptually a lot, uh, that kind of the age old story. However, few people really do anything about it. So Ben was CEO of take two interactive. They're the publisher of those smash video game hits, red dead redemption, grand theft auto and NBA 2k. Uh, so guys at the top of his career, And he walked away looking at these issues in his life. And he just walked away, literally stepped down from the big job, took his four kids out of school. And he and his wife moved the family to Bali for a year. And there he found himself. He found his family and his relationships again. And he also found this message that he's now sharing with the world. He's got a new book called Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. But it's interesting, that back part, because today he's president of international partnerships for the U.S. at Tencent Games, which is a massive Chinese conglomerate that publishes video games as well. And you think that going and doing what he did, he'd come back and you know start a farm or something something, but he went back to what he knows, which is big corporate business, but he went back differently. So I asked him about that and we talk about it, of course, in this show. I mean, the big takeaway is really just the power of living deliberately and the necessity to, to step back and really look at what we're doing and, and do a sabbatical of sorts, even if it's a sabbatical of the mind. And of course we talk about that too. My gosh, not everybody, including myself can just take a year off, go to live in Bali with my family. So how does the regular person do that? And we hit that pretty significantly. Um, you can check uh, more about Ben at Ben Fetter, F E D E R Ben Fetter author. So we're going to dive in with Ben and just this intriguing conversation right after I share some great resources with you. Okay, friends, well, here I bring you an amazing conversation with Ben Fetter. Well, Ben, it's an honor to have you on here. I uh, was intrigued by your book, as I'm sure most people are, because it's uh, it's an about face on the norm, which is the point here. And you know, it starts off with your your journey from the point of a, of a crisis. I want to jump back though, and I want to go back because I doubt you just woke up one day leading one of the largest video game companies there is. Uh, something led you up there. So literally back into your upbringing, what, what was the influence or was there an influence that helped prod you along to, in essence, get to the top of the corporate ladder? Wow. Uh, that's a big question. I, a you big know, question. I don't, you know, honestly, I, uh, I don't, I don't want to put too much, I wouldn't put too much stock in all of that. I think there's a good built bit of luck in anybody's career and anybody's success in whatever form that takes. And so it's hard for me to draw a line to it. To it, I, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about my background, and we can draw yeah. conclusions if you like. But um, you know, I grew up in Canada. Actually, I grew up um, in a traditional uh, Jewish family, and um, 
very strong family ethic and family ethos, um, which, uh, uh, you know, part of the book kind of the story about family ethics and family values. Um, and, uh, uh, but I grew up kind of always wanting, to, I was always kind of the entrepreneurial kid, actually. I always thought my, my parents had modest means and I always thought, you know, I'd be the kid that would grow up and take care of everybody. Um, and so, um, uh, I've got lots of great little kind of, my kids love these kind of little entrepreneurial stories I have when I was, when I was a kid, Yeah, you know, so, you know, I'd always be selling something. Um, but I'm not, I don't consider myself a salesman kind of CEO and I know how to sell, but I'm not kind of a salesy kind of guy. Um, I'm more an analytical kind of guy. So I did, I did that and kind of, um, I don't know, I was lucky enough to get into Columbia college in New York. Um, and, um, and in my career, you know, I, I tell people all the time, it's really hard to draw a line through my career because it's zigged and zagged. And, and I tell my kids also that, you know, career is what you have when you look in the rearview mirror. But as you're going through it, it's just kind of one, one job after another, one opportunity after another. Um, but, you know, I, I was a history graduate student. I went, I studied history in college, went on to graduate student, graduate work in history. And I was just kind of really intellectually curious. So I don't know that I could sort of say, hey, you know, I've always wanted to be CEO of a company. I yeah. think it's been every, everybody has a fantasy of success, whatever it is in their career, whether it's being a chief surgeon or a chief executive officer or you know, chief creative officer, whatever it is, or, or nothing, or just being an artist, period. I think everybody's got their own ambition. So is it more, um, more just a progression of, you know, wanting to be successful in your work? And it I kept think so. It's, it was just a raw ambition. You know, I just wanted to be successful. I wanted achievement. I kind of look at, um, you know, the kinds of things I've done in my career, I've tried to achieve. And it's always been about um, achievement. And, you know, if you put a piece of cheese in front of me, I'll figure out a way to get there. Well, and that's what's interesting to me, though. I mean, as we look at personal development and you said the word raw achievement, uh, you're well aware that not everybody taps into that. I mean, there are a lot of people who get to a certain point and they're okay there. And there are some others who, yeah, like you, they, well, they want to keep going. And so the curiosity, I mean, to be the holy grail answer is, is why do some and some don't. Um, you obviously had that drive. Was there a driving factor, a driving motivator of any type other than just wanting to do well at what you did? Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think mine is, I don't, I don't know what to tell you about that. I, you know, I, I had ambitions to do great. I don't think everybody's ambitious and thank God not everybody is kind of needs to be, you know, vastly, uh, or, or not everybody's kind of gunning after the same goals. Yeah. And I think we'd be in a impoverished society if we were. And I think it's perfectly all right not to want to be the head of an organization or, or to, um, achieve, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever ambitions you have, I think it's perfectly fine. Um, I, I can, I don't, I don't know what to tell you about that. I think, um, you know, I went from uh, business school to working in a big company and I got really interested in organizations. I got really interested in leadership. I got interested in people. I got interested in investments and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I don't think there is a great way to learn about all of that other than by doing it and getting um, completely engaged. Um, and I've, uh, and I, and I pursued it. I, that, that's kind of what I've done. I've just kind of um, gone after it. I don't, I don't, I'm afraid I don't have a great answer to your question, but no, Hey, that's, 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 it's asking how the journey formulated and it's interesting to hear yeah. how it did or how it didn't. Um, well you yeah. obviously, and this is where the book starts off. You hit a breaking point in your life. You'd conquered to some degree or had great success in work and finances, but relationships are strained. 
as you know, not a news story there. And, and even those who haven't gone high up the corporate ladder still come to those points of, you know, job is taxing, life is taxing and relationships take a hit as does the other part of your health and balance and, and whatnot. But you did something about it. And I'm pulling this quote uh, that I got off from, from Tom, uh, is it Glosser? I think uh, the most, he said, most hard charging senior executives have thought of leaving their stressful jobs and bugging out to Valley. Ben had the guts to do it. Even if we can't follow in his footsteps, we can all benefit from his experience through the compelling story he tells in take off your shoes. So in the process of writing the book, now that the book's out and the feedback, I mean, when you look back, it was there a specific catalyst where you said, I'm going to make that big, bold choice, knowing that that's, that's far from the norm. That's a, that's a huge deviation from the norm. Um, you know, there is a moment that I describe where it all kind of comes together for me. And it's, it's usually, but it, you know, it's never that one moment and you kind of, you're impulsive. It's usually something that's built up as a, and that one moment kind of crystallizes everything. And there was this one moment when I um, came home from work one day and I knock on my son's door and he's in eighth grade and he's kind of barricaded inside his room. He was a good student. He was just doing his homework. And I knock on his crack the door open and I say, Hey Sam. And he, um, kind of grunts something at me and um, and then we come to dinner and he kind of grunts some more and I kind of had this realization that he's going to go to high school he's going to get deeper and deeper into his work um, and in the meantime I'm going to have circled the globe four or five times a year because of my work and um, at business dinners and all of that stuff and I had this moment of realization that this is where men become the husbands and fathers they never intended to be that you kind of you follow your ambition and you follow your career and if, and if you're lucky or you're successful and um, and it just gets more and more interesting and then without your knowing it um, the relationships that have fed you your entire life somehow begin to fall away and I was really concerned that um, you know he would go to high school he'd graduate he'd go to college and kind of all be over and I'd miss the kind of the most important years of my life. Um, the things that were important to me and career was important, but it wasn't my whole life. And, um, and the things that mattered to me, I felt were going to slip away from me. And it was, and I guess that feeling had been, or that, that sense had been building up for a long time, but it was that, that moment that I, um, I began to question the goals of what I wanted to accomplish, not in my work because work was part of it, but in my entire life and what, you know, what it is that I wanted to do. And that moment um, was, uh, you know, really kind of set me down a path of like questioning, you know, you know, we only have a limited amount of time on earth and, you know, what do we want to do with it? And so I just made a, I made a decision and I had, I guess the confidence that I'll figure something out when I got back. Um, a lot of people, when they reach, um, some big position kind of hold on with their fingernails and will never let go. And I, um, for some reason felt like, I needed to let go. I think there was more going on than just that, but that was the kind of the primary impetus. Well, and you obviously took a big step, taking the kids out of school, stepping down from your position, going away for in, in essence a year across the, uh, across the ocean. And yet I know, and I know you've gotten this question a lot and you speak to it, that even if someone doesn't do that, you feel like they can at least do a semblance of that, a step away, a, a sabbatical of sorts. Will you speak to that? Cause I know we've got a lot of folks in the audience who are feeling right off the bat and I don't want them to discount this message. Feel like, well, I, you know, I, I don't have the ability to do that. I'm strapped no. to paycheck to paycheck. How do I 
do that. And we're going to get into some of the meat of what you experienced there, but I want to hit that right off the bat because I want people to listen in and accept the opportunity. Um, I have two answers to that question. One of them you may not like, and one of them you might, right? right. One that you may not like, which is, which probably because it may sound a little defensive is that, cause I get, I do get this a lot. It's like, Oh sure. Mr. One percenter, you can do it. What about me? Um, and I have to tell you that the people that I met while I was away, um, were not, were people of modest means. They were, um, you know, I don't know, photographers and nurses and teachers and, um, you know, people who kind of just, uh, you know, who, who didn't have uh, a big paycheck or a big bank account. And yet they found a way um, to to take their own sabbatical. And there's a wonderful book that I will plug. It's not my book yeah. um, that I read when I was doing this. It's kind of how to, it's called Escape 101, how to take a sabbatical without losing your money or your mind. And, um, you know, it's not, it's written for, you know, Joe worker and sort of like, look, if you want to do this, if this is a goal that you really want, you have to work at it. Right. So, for, you know, so you say, you know, we're not going to go to the movies this weekend because in five years, we're going to take the most incredible adventure of our lives. And this is, so it requires a little bit of mindfulness and a little bit of sacrifice if you really wanted to get it done. And that's the general story about the people that I met there. They just said, this is what we want to do. So that's kind of one answer to the question about like, Oh sure. How do I get it done? The truth is, if you really want it badly enough, you can figure out a way to do it almost like just like anything else. So I hope that that doesn't sound defensive, but it is how I feel. No, I, I the, appreciate it. Um, uh, the second answer to the question, people have said to me, you know, the next book you should write is, you know, how do you take a sabbatical in your mind as opposed to with your body? And, you know, how do you uh, take a sabbatical, not by leaving, but by staying put and, and um, achieve some of the, um, the piece that you say you achieved while you're away. Um, and I do believe that's a really interesting way of thinking about this. There are a lot of practices and methods um, that are available for people who want to learn how to either take, not, not even take time off from their work, but get out of that mode of need to, have to, got to, push, 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 or live paycheck to paycheck. How do you get out of that tunnel vision and and uh, create a more expansive worldview and a more um, uh, and, and a more loving spiritual view. And I think you can do that without having to um, leave your job or leave your home. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought about when I was writing this book is all the people that I've met through my career, um, people who worked in either my organization or in other organizations, they were kind of like, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their job, they're in their cube, and they're like dying inside. They're just mm -hmm. dying inside. And um, there's a, there is, I hope part of the message of the book is that there is a different way of being and a different way of living your life that is more deliberate, that is more open, and that is more uh, spiritual and loving um, than simply grinding it out day after day after day. And, you know, that may be the topic of the next book of, you know, how do you, how do, you do that without necessarily having to go on sabbatical? Well, and I want to dig into that question, but I'm going to come to it after we get into a little bit of your story, because I am interested and I'll just put this out there that, that we'll get to is, you know, you didn't come back from the experience and start an organic farm where you work two hours a day and then just, you know, uh, play in the forest the rest of the time. You're back in another big position. And the curiosity is how you were in it differently than you were. But I want to come back to that question because right now I want to go in. You take off. You make this big change. You go over there. 
was it just profound from the moment you landed or was there an initial period of holy crap in essence? uh you know when we land in bali i mean the the language is actually a little more colorful in the book than holy crap probably um um, but there was a i remember the first night we arrived and you know when you land in bali it's very kind of third world and um you know we went to bali sight unseen not sight unseen you go on the internet and it looks beautiful but when you arrive it's just like filthy and noisy and smoky and it's just, and we just looked at my wife and I looked at each other after we put our kids to bed and there was a, a bit of that holy crap moment what have we done yeah. um and I've since returned to Bali and you do have that moment when you land it's like it's very third world and then you kind of you plug into some special magic on that island um and there and once you get past all of that and you, if you're in the right places on the island, you do get into both the beauty of the place, but also the spirituality of the place, um, and and the, um, the incredible way of being. I have a friend of mine who says that um, you know there are certain places on the planet that are just spiritual, and that's one of those places. Hmm. And it's um, uh, so you do. I did yes, had the moment of holy crap, but it did not take long before I realized. What an amazing gift I was giving myself and my family by doing this. Yeah. So when you look at the, you're there, life has happened in the first day, the first week, the first month. And I'm curious about the changes, which came first. I'll ask relational changes. Was that your focal point? And right away, you're looking at your wife, you're looking at your kids and you're looking at those relational changes and seeing some things happen there first, or was it first a shift in your own, I'll say soul in your own heart, in your own peace, which came first? Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, when we were, when we first started out, I really wanted, because I was, you know, such an achievement oriented kind of guy, you know, I really was looking for what my kids are going to get out of it. And, you know, educationally and all of that stuff. And it's not a terrible goal to have, right? you know, but I push my kids and make sure they got the most out of the moment. At the same time, you know, I was reading about uh, meditation and brain plasticity and the ability, as I like to say, you know, about changing our lives by changing our minds. And I was doing a lot of internal work on my own kind of, you know, way of being in this world. Um, and I don't think that... We, I would have had the kind of change in the relationship I had with my family had I not really worked on uh, changing who I was and changing the way I thought about things and changing how I wanted to be um, in this world. And um, I can't, so I wouldn't say which comes first, but I will say that I could not have had the change in relationships with my family had I not changed myself. Yeah. Um, and so I think that almost is the necessary condition, let's put it that way, as opposed to which comes first. Well, just as I ask about your catalyst or I'll say moment in time that led you to making the big decision to go there, to, to, to take off from life in a sense, to take a break from the regular, regular life. Was there again, a moment in time that had to have been, when was it where you realized this is significant? This is, this is worthwhile. This was a good move. Um, You know, uh, let me let me answer a slightly different question, right? When or a slightly answer a different way, I would say first of all that it took a good six to eight weeks for me to clear the cobwebs out of my head, and um, uh, you know, kind of I was still for the first six to eight weeks, I was still my mind was still very much back in New York. Yeah. 
Um, and then I took a, uh, with some of the other uh, school parents there, we took a trip to Java uh, and I took my mountain bike and we kind of hiked, up, we just kind of took a mountain bike ride up a volcano called Ujian. And um, I kind of felt that that mountain bike ride was a bit of a metaphor for um, what I was trying to accomplish there. Because you get to the top and it's a really, really difficult ride. Um, and uh, and when the ride ends, you still to get to the top, the, the real peak of the volcano, you, you have to hike it up another three kilometers. And when you get there, it's kind of, um, uh, there's a mining, a sulfur mining operation there and the fumes are toxic and it's smelly and hot and, and, the, and the, um, you kind of feel like you really can't spend much time there or much longer. And I just kind of felt like as I got down that mountain, that it was kind of this bit of a metaphor for where I'd, where I'd come from. And I was with some friends and um, the way down, I sort of felt like this oneness with, um, well, with my bike for sure. And then, but ultimately with the people around me and I felt, um, I don't know, like I was super grounded in what I was doing and I wasn't kind of reminiscing about the past or, or, or worrying about the future or wasn't with somewhere else on email or something like that. I was just kind of right there in the moment. And that was kind of an amazing thing for me. It was kind of this great feeling of just being in a different part of the planet with some great friends um, and kind of, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, if you're asking for a moment, I kind of feel like that was the moment. Of, and I can't quite explain it, but getting down from the mountain and leaving kind of a um, uh, a place, I mean, the mountain was kind of toxic. I wouldn't say that, you know, my situation prior to Bali was toxic, but it was, you know, it was stressful. By getting away from it, I kind of felt like, oh, you know, it's got this big exhale that I, you know, finally arrived. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, 
but getting them to actually give their payment info is. And Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. You all know I greatly value and pursue my health and wellness, and I'm always looking for better products and resources. Nutritional supplements are a staple for me, and a must is a probiotic to support my gut health and function. A probiotic is something I've taken each and every day for the long-term cumulative benefits. Seed is a company that makes a symbiotic, which is actually a unique mix of probiotics and prebiotics. Probiotics are beneficial bacteria and prebiotics are food for these bacteria. So Seed's symbiotic containing both helps balance my gut bacteria. So together, the Seed DSO-1 symbiotic benefits my gut, skin, and heart health in just two little capsules a day. Taking seeds, DSO-1 symbiotic, and avoiding the foods I know my body is sensitive to has taken me from constant digestive problems to almost none. I trust seeds clinical trials and breakthrough research that's been published in top scientific journals. You can entrust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash drive and use code 25DRIVE to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash drive, code 25DRIVE. Well, and you know, when you look at Bali, you think about, I think the, the, the common thought is of it as a spiritual place in your book, the tagline corporate takeover, spiritual makeover, but something that, well, it really was part of the reason of leading up to this interview that you said that I was, I am highly interested in. And you said it a second ago is brain plasticity. Uh, that's something that in looking at meditation, even we have so many people who are espousing meditation these days. And a lot of them are in some sense, taking it out of just some spiritual thing that there, this is brain training. When you talk about brain plasticity, that's a term that I spend a lot of time playing in. It's not a very commonplace in our culture term. I think it's getting there. Speak to that a little bit, because I think that's, that's not a common term. There's a lot of people hearing that right now who don't understand what you mean by brain plasticity. Um, you know, it used to be that, um, or what, what, what neuroscientists used to think was, you know, we are who we are. We're never changing, right? Our brains are the one organ in our, in our body that really doesn't change at all. And what we've discovered over um, some last period of time is that the brain actually does uh, change over time. Um, and I mean, anywhere from, you know, recovering from brain injury, but also um, the really interesting thing is that, our brain's anatomy changes with the thoughts that we have, physically changes with the thoughts that we have. And so, you know, we have the ability literally to deliberately change our thought processes and deliberately change who we are. And so, I mean, to me, that's kind of what brain plasticity means, that by changing our neural pathways, you know, one of the, one of the uh, aphorisms in this world is neurons that uh, – uh, fire together, wire together, which is to say, the more we think a certain thought, the more we think a certain thought, right? It's like, it's like uh, a sled in the snow. If you think of a thought, 
once it creates a track, if you think of it again, the track gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and that becomes kind of locked in. And for me, that rang true, right? You'd have immediate thought processes that, um, that you never really question. And part of the exercise for meditation is both questioning your thoughts, right? Are they really real? Do you really get caught up in them? A, questioning them, and B, can you change them to think in patterns that are uh, different than what you what you impossibly thought before? So you literally change the way you think and therefore change the way you are. And for me, what I was looking to accomplish was to live in a much more um, compassionate, loving, and spiritual way. You know, the book starts with a hostile takeover of a company that's really, um, you know, a, a scene of pure corporate aggression. And, um, and I went to Bali in a way to really question whether this is the way I really wanted to be and uh, the way I wanted to think in terms of think in terms of abundance versus scarcity, thinking in terms of, um, kind of openness versus closeness. And, um, and for me, that's kind of what brain plasticity is about. And one of the, one of the exercises and practices in order to change the way you think is the medication. And that's kind of why I came up with that, why I kind of started to pursue that as a practice. Um, but brain plasticity and neuroplasticity, I think, is a very, very new field. And um, I think can be pretty powerful. And for me, I have to say it, it really changed who I, uh, who I am and it changed the way I am in this world with my family, with my friends, with myself um, and with my business associates. I had somebody, you know, you mentioned I kind of, you know, I ended up taking another big job and I had somebody in that. Uh, in that company kind of read my book and the company's kind of a very kind of positive culture. And he sort of said, you know, have you not done that hippy dippy thing? You wouldn't have lasted six months here. And, um, uh, and the truth is I wouldn't even know what he was talking about had I not done that thing because I just, I, I, had, I didn't know any other way to be other than being super aggressive, super competitive, you know, everything is zero sum. And, um, and there's just a much better way of living your life. And this is what I was in pursuit of. Well, so let me jump to that question then. You are in another large position. Are your circumstances, so when you look at where you are now as opposed to where you were, again, two big companies, big positions, have you altered, as a result of what you went through, have you altered the circumstances of how you are working, how you're engaging in that work today, and or is it primarily a perspective? You're living out of different tracks, as you said. Uh, that you rewired with? Well, um, look, you know, the, um, I'll answer one more question, which is kind of, you know, why did you go back to the same life you had before? Okay, sure. Um, which, I, which I get asked, which I get asked periodically. Um, and the truth is, I think we, we all have our trade and we all, and you need to practice your trade, right? I kind of, I know what I'm good at. And um, it's not to say they don't try things that are hard for me and get out of my comfort zone, but I do what I do. And, um, you know, to go off and do something else, which is like what you talked about in the beginning of the hour was, uh, I, you know, I did that for a little bit. And then I kind of realized, you know, this is, this is kind of what I enjoy doing. And this is um, how I enjoy spending my work life. And so, you know, we have to practice our trade. And that's kind of why I went back to um, uh, a similar type of environment. That said, A, I think the environment is very different um, than the one I was in. And um, uh, and B, I approach it in a vastly different way. Um, so, for example, you know, I have three practices that I took from Bali that um, I've maintained. 
um, in terms of what I've, I, I've maintained and kind of uh, in terms of the way I live my life. One is that I meditate daily. Um, and that's really kind of, that's, that really enables me to do what I think, I, I call it kind of my matrix move, right? I don't react to things, I respond to things, I kind of like slow things down in my mind that, you know, I can really not get carried away with, you know, whatever that phone call you get in the middle of the day that just can ruin your, used to ruin my entire day. I kind of, I deal with it a lot better. Um, and uh, meditation is one of them. Yoga is another, which I think kind of really just adds motion to that dialogue that I have through meditation. And then finally, I, you know, while I was in Bali, in terms of brain plasticity, you know, I taught myself a brand new skill that I never thought I'd be able to do, which is to be um, an artist and a painter. And I continue to paint, and it brings me a enormous amount of joy and b enormous amount of um, you know creative creative output. And so all of that together leads me to think that I'm living. Um, a much richer life while at the same time kind of, you know, practicing my, practicing my niche, what, what I, what I like to do. So in that and being in a, let's say you say it's a, you know, company culture is different, but the, you know, a lot of the essence is, is the, is similar. If we went back to your, where you were originally before this endeavor, before the book, and now where you are here, if you go back to the, the initial before the trip, your partners, your employees, alliances, vendors, investors, all those relationships there, what would they see as primary differences in how you are working today? You know, I don't know the, first of all, I don't have those, those some relationships don't really apply to what I'm doing right now. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, uh, I don't know that they would see it in the work world. A lot of it is kind of, you know, internal to me. Um, but what's interesting to me is that a lot of them, will come to a meeting and say, Hey, I read your book. Huh. And, um, and they would say, you know, that's a part of you I never knew before. And I, uh, and cause there's a great deal, you know, for a corporate guy, there's a lot of vulnerability in that book. Yeah. And, um, you know, I find that people really respond to it. You know, you sort of think that when you're vulnerable, you kind of, you know, especially in the corporate world, people either take advantage or they think you've kind of lost your mind. And I don't think that at all. I think that either they kind of really appreciated and felt like they got to know me a little bit. Um, and often it forces people to ask themselves similar questions. And um, it's just wrong to think that, you know, whatever corporate environment you're in, that the guy you're sitting next to doesn't also have an emotional life, doesn't also have a family life, doesn't also have his own vulnerabilities. Um, and by exposing your own vulnerability, you invite them to um, either expose them, their own, or at least kind of share that they have vulnerabilities. And in a way, it's brought me a lot closer to the people that otherwise would have just seen me as, you know, some guy who's just, you know, business, goal-oriented, money, all of that stuff. Um, and they see me as kind of a more uh, holistic person, a whole person. Um, and I think the connections are actually deeper. And at the end of the day, in my view, business is a very too but um to me it's about connecting to people um and i think it's been it's been really helpful in that way not only from the book that i wrote but also just kind of the way i carry myself well obviously you could have taken this experience gone about your own life with the benefit that you gained but you did decide to write a book to get the message to get a message out there so i'll ask you that what is the if there's a primary takeaway and, and also who your primary avatar is when you thought about writing this book as publishers often do they'll tell you you know write to a person not to a crowd. who's yeah. that, who's that person and what is the message you would hope 
to give to them? Um, the person I wrote the book for was an ex- a male executive in their forties. That's who I had in my mind when I was writing the book. Um, as it turns out, most male executives in their forties who read the book say, "Hey, can I give this to my wife? I know she'd really love it." Okay. Um, and so there's a secondary audience there too, and I find that you know it kind of you know I, I, it, it attracts readers, uh, um, you know, in the forties, fifties, thirties, whatever. But it has attracted a, a large female readership, which is not surprising because women are uh, the big readers in this country. Um, so that's kind of who I had in mind. And, um, uh, and then when they asked for the takeaway, you know, I really try to avoid the question because as I was writing the book, the first draft of the book was much more in kind of the self-help mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I got some feedback that sort of said, look, if you really want to find your way into people's hearts, you need to make it much more narrative and less expository mm-hmm. and to tell your story. Now, as I was writing that, and as a business person, you're always thinking about, okay, how am I different? How do I make the story different? How do I differentiate? Um, and the best way to differentiate it is to make it highly personal, right? Because it can only be my story. Um, and so, and that's what I, so what I try to tell people is like, look, I can give you some takeaways, but really what I try to do is tell my story and take away what you will take away from it, right? You're, the reader is part of um, the relationship that's going on here, right? There's me, the writer, and the book, and then there's the reader that brings its own thing, just like when you paint something, right? The viewer takes in what the viewer takes in, not just not just what the painter intended. And I feel the same way about the book. That said, if, if there was one takeaway on this is kind of live the life that you want. Be deliberate about the life that you want to choose. And I'm not saying life's without risks. And for sure, I paid the price. And, um, and for sure, I took some risks. And maybe I had more confidence than most that, you know, it'll all work out in the end. Um, but we only go around once. Somebody told me this great expression that he attributed to Confucius, which I love, and it kind of expresses this, which is, um, we only have two lives. Everybody has two lives to lead. And the second one starts the moment you realize you only have one. Wow. And um, and so that, I, I think that's kind of a pretty good takeaway over here. Just to live the life that you want to lead that's based on your values and your um, uh, your set of priorities. And be deliberate about it. Make deliberate choices. Don't get carried away by the currents of life and don't get carried away by some incentive system that a company puts in front of you and try to like, well, you know, next year I can make this much bonus. I can't tell you how many conversations I had while I was in Bali and call people in New York and I said, how are you doing? And they'd say, oh, I'm having a great year. Hmm. I'm like, that's not what I asked, you know, but that's, um, uh, you know, but see if there's a way, and I do this, you know, another benefit of meditation is a way of witnessing your life from the outside and um, you know, we, we all get to tunnel vision when we start concentrating on a particular task, and it's worth kind of tearing yourself away from that task and getting a broader perspective. And I think, uh, you know, one of the ways of doing that is um, both to articulate what your intention is and then really act on it. And, um, you know, I did that, you know, once in a dramatic way, and I still fall back on old habits. I'm not, you know, I'm like everybody else, but that would be a good takeaway. Well, you just hit on that when you say articulate your intention. Another statement that you made that resonated with me was have the courage of one's convictions. And when you make that statement, as you are now a purveyor of this book, of this message, and you are hearing feedback from people, do you find, and I'm, I'm literally curious, do you find that people have convictions that they just need to commit to? Or that a lot of them, as you maybe alluded to there, need to take time to articulate what their convictions really are? 
Well, look, I, you know, I think your show often is about, um, you know, setting up habits and, um, you know, being deliberate on a bunch of different levels, whether it's spiritual or family or career or, or right. whatever. And I think it's a great exercise and not an easy exercise to really articulate your own values. They change over time for sure, but most people don't even take the time to do that. And um, there is a sense of awakening that you get mm -hmm. when you are able to, first of all, see yourself from the outside, recognize kind of, you know, that, you know, where you are in the world. Um, and then, you know, deliberately articulate what your values are and live according to those. And it's, it's a big challenge. It's not easy. Um, but even going through the exercise, setting the intention of going through the exercise is, 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 you know, is in itself a benefit. And so, um, but most people don't do it. They just kind of, I don't know, they wake up in the morning, they have their cup of coffee and they go to work. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it's worth pausing and thinking about, uh, what it, what it is that, uh, you really want out of your life because it's going to go really, really quickly. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to think about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to air doctor comes with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping, go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off exclusive to podcast customers. You will also receive a free three year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to a I R D O C T O R P R O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So my book and this podcast are named What Drives You. And what drives us to great things is our own values, our known values. When we go astray, it's because we've lost sight of our values. Therapy is key for helping you clarify what matters most to you so you can do more of it. I was late to taking advantage of therapy. It was only for crisis, but now myself and most of the rock stars I have on my show get therapy regularly. For most people, the main hurdle is starting therapy. I recommend you try BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's flexible. It's suited to your schedule and trying it doesn't involve an afternoon of your time and all the hassle. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapist anytime, no additional charge. You can learn to make time for what is most valuable to you. So visit betterhelp.com slash what drives you today. You get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash what drives you. We're in the same vein of question as you experience people who are reading the book, comprehending the message, pondering their own life. One of the other statements that you make is just having the ability to make the bold choice. Now, obviously yours was, I put it over here in the dramatic 
you know, side, but uh, <laughs> to, to say the least, but are you still saying, even if it's not that big, even if it's not a, a taking your family away, going for a year to make a change, that's going to be significant still takes a bold choice. Well, yeah, I think almost by definition, if you're going to make a big change, it's, it's going to be bold. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the question is, you know, what changes can you make that aren't so bold, right? And, you know, similar to the question of can you go on sabbatical without actually leaving your home? And, um, and if your goal is to um, have the sense of awakening and your goal is to live your life more deliberately, um, yes, yeah, sometimes it will uh, involve some bold choices, but sometimes not. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is courage and the relationship between fear and courage. And so people talk about fear and anxiety a lot in in our society, but the flip side of fear and anxiety is courage and courage. I think most people agree is a big virtue. And so how do you turn some of, you know, what you're, you know, the anxiety that you're feeling into something much more virtuous. And sometimes it could be a big decision and sometimes it could be a small decision. The lesson of living your life deliberately or the idea of living your life deliberately and setting intention and, um, and living by that intention, I don't think requires anybody to make a bold decision. And, but it does um, bring to that person a certain sense of power over their own lives yeah. um, that I think a lot of people relinquish way too easily because they fall back in this notion of, I, I don't know, I live paycheck to paycheck, I can't. Um, and I think that's, I, I don't want to diminish that people do that, but I do think that you can live, live a life of intention, even while you live paycheck to paycheck. Well, I think that pretty much covers everybody out there. We can all relate at some point, whether folks are at your spot or they're living paycheck to paycheck. Man, I, I just appreciate Ben, you having the courage to write this book that as you testified, a lot of your peers were surprised that you, uh, that anyone would do that, to be that vulnerable, but that's what the beauty of the book It is just a powerful story that uh, we will be recommending everybody go check out, but, uh, just grateful that you had the courage to let us partake of the incredible experience that you had. Well, thank you so much for your interest and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, are you ready to take a sabbatical to reconnect or maybe connect for the first time with yourself. Uh, again, just so intriguing. Again, you can get Ben's book, Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back at Ben Fetter, that's F-E-D-E-R, BenFetterAuthor.com or of course, wherever you buy books. And please let Ben know uh, if you got value from his message. Leave a review in iTunes for us at The Ziggler Show and mention this specific show and Ben's name. You just can't imagine how much our guests feel encouraged by this. They often don't know how the interview went over and what people thought about it. So thank you in advance. Well, coming up next in show 612, Zig Ziglar tells a story of a seminar he did where they had a doctor literally take blood from participants before and after the talk. I think it was about a two-hour talk. And the results afterwards showed a big increase in endorphins and dopamine. Now, the point wasn't simply Zig's talks, as powerful as they are, but just what positive input does to our physical selves. And I play in the show, I play the two-minute story from Zig, but then I posted this question on Facebook. 
What activities do you proactively engage in or with to energize yourself mentally? In a sense, what do you frequently do to lift your spirits? The responses were really varied, uh, much more so than I had anticipated, which was really cool. And uh, just so interesting to read through them, which Tom Ziegler and I did. We read through them together. So you'll enjoy this show a lot. Well, till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. Most Americans at New Year's are thinking about improving their health and losing some weight. In regards to eating, the feeling is generally it's going to cost more money, more stress and effort, and you got to eat bland food. Well, a solution to all these is HelloFresh. HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You skip trips to the grocery store. You can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's literally number one meal kit. You can make saving time a viable resolution with quick, convenient recipes. They're delivered right to you. You just choose your meals and select your delivery date. And HelloFresh handles the meal planning and shopping. So you just open your weekly box of pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes and you're cooking quickly with ease and joy. My family loves HelloFresh. We just open the box, follow the recipes, and have something new and interesting and good for us. It's become one of our family's favorite activities together. So go to HelloFresh.com slash drive free. And use code Drive Free for free breakfast for life. You get one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash Drive Free with code Drive Free. HelloFresh, it's America's number one meal kit.